I'm ready. How can we be sure the seven-day cycle hasn't been broken? Weren't there lots of calendars and even an eight-day week back in the early church? This is a fascinating subject. If you do some digging into calendars, you find all kinds of different stuff. Um, and you have the Jews with a calendar, you have the Babylonians with calendars. I mean, really, everybody has a calendar, because uh, what are calendars for, right? Trying to figure out when your religious or social festivals are, or trying to figure out when planting and harvest and all that good stuff, you know, the farmer's almanac kind of thing. So every culture is going to have some type of a calendar system. Um, Some are more developed than others. And uh, today we have what's called a solar calendar. And what we know is that a year is 365 and roughly a quarter days. And so every fourth year, is that right? We have a a leap year and and we add a day in there, right? And uh, so that's a solar calendar. But back around the time of uh, from the Babylonians to the Romans, that kind of range of time, 500 BC to the early time of AD when Jesus was around, they had um, a variety of lunar solar calendars. And these are calendars that kind of, um, they, they traced a lunar month, you know, about 30 days or so, uh, depending on which one you're talking about. The Babylonians had a um, months with 29 and 30 days alternating back and forth. And the Jews had a 30-day calendar. Every month was 30 days. But um, it didn't work exactly right because uh, how many days are in a, in a month, I mean, in a year, if you have 12 30-day months? 360, which is a nice round number, but not exactly what we should be having in, in, a year, in a yearly cycle, right? There's another five and a quarter days that they're missing. And so as time would go on, they would see that the, the moon would, there'd be a new moon at a time when it, well, the, the harvest wasn't happening yet, right? It, was, right. it wasn't right. And so um, one of the the, uh, the Sanhedrin was eventually in charge of how to handle this kind of stuff. And so the head of the Sanhedrin, the, the patriarch, would, um, would say, if this happens, you know, if, this, if you're seeing this stuff, and they'd have people out watching the moon, if you're seeing this stuff, then, then it's not the first, year, first month of the year. Um, it's uh, this, a 13th month of the year, and they add a month. And it's not a full month. It's not a 30-day month. They, they added like a 10 or 15-day month right? The half month. And so that, that, that adding of a few days or adding of a month is called intercalation. Why, I don't, why they call it that, I don't know, but that's the official name of it, intercalation. And you get, you get this happening in the Babylonian calendar, you get it happening in the Jewish calendar, it happens in the Roman calendar. And, uh, and so you might think, oh my goodness, there is so much change going on in all these different calendars that uh, certainly they're going to they're gonna mess up the cycle of the week. But, but here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you have a solar calendar or a lunar calendar. The cycle of the week, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, continues no matter what. I mean, just think about it today. Every time we have a February 29th, our week is totally messed up, isn't it? No, it's not. We don't skip a beat. It doesn't matter what date it is. It doesn't matter what month it is. It doesn't even matter what year it is. The days just roll on one after the other, and it's just a seven-day cycle. And it has been since creation, and every culture has had a seven-day cycle, with the exception of a few outliers. And there happened to be in, uh, in Italy, actually, and, and this influenced the Roman Empire a tad bit for a little bit um, during uh, the time of the early church. Um, there was a, an eight-day, um, 
work week kind of thing. But it wasn't a work week. It was a market calendar. So they would have an eight-day market calendar, and that gave them seven days for market and one day off. And uh, to be honest, it didn't impact the, the daily lives of most people. Um, it was simply a kind of a, a layer on top of the seven-day week that the Romans um, observed throughout the whole world. And it was only in um, a, a area of Italy and known as the Etrus- Etrusca. The Etruscans, anyway, are the ones that made this eight-day week. Okay. It didn't have any impact on the seven-day cycle. It was localized. And, and uh, more recently, we've had 10-day weeks. Um, what was it, France, that did a 10-day week for a little while back in the 17, 1800s? And it didn't really work out. People kind of got sick and didn't like it very much. And so it was a short-lived and localized experiment. And then they went back to what everybody else was doing, the seven-day cycle. So um, all kinds of interesting stuff about calendars, but nothing that I can find throughout all history, and certainly not in the, in the, the time since Jesus, has changed that seven-day cycle. So God knows best in a seven-day week is great. Yeah, I think the seven-day week was designed Amen. because we need that. Amen. <laughs> One more question. Who is Michael the Archangel? You touched on it last night. We want some more details tonight. Okay, you're going to need to help me. Can you open your Bible to Daniel? I can. Okay, you're going to be in Daniel chapter um, 9 and 12, so hold on to that. Okay. Now, last night we talked, about Gab- um, we talked about Gabriel and how God calls, or the Bible calls him an angel. We talked about Lucifer and how God calls him a covering cherub, the one that stood right back, right next to God in the, the um, heavenly um, temple courtroom scene. And, um, and then we talked about this character, Michael. And each time Michael is brought up, we have some specific characteristics. For example, Michael in uh, Daniel 10 is called a, um, uh, your prince. And in, um, a little bit later in Daniel 10, um, well, it's the prince and then your prince. And then in Daniel 12, it says the chief prince, right? And then in Jude, we found that Michael is called um, the archangel. And in each case, whether it's Daniel 10, he's fighting with the prince of Persia, or Daniel 10, 12, he keeps guard over the, the people of Israel, or in Jude, he's fighting over the body of Moses with the devil, or in uh, Revelation 12, he's in this heavenly battle with the dragon and all his angels, and it's Michael and his angels, the dragon is his angels, and there's this, this um, cosmic battle scene pretty much every time you see this, this name, Michael. And we notice that Michael is just a little bit different than Gabriel because Gabriel's not able able to overcome the prince of Persia, but Michael comes in and Gabriel's able to go now because they win that battle. And uh, of course, Michael ends up winning the battle over the devil in heaven and they cast out the devil and his his angels. So there's there's this... um, He's, he seems to be something a little bit different than Gabriel. He's certainly not like Daniel or you and I. And so what is this Michael character? What kind of angel is an archangel? And I suggested that you go do some digging and look for angel of the Lord in the Bible. Did anybody do that? You don't have to raise your hands. <laughs> it's okay if you didn't. Um, if you did look for the angel of the Lord, then you would have found some interesting stories. One of the first stories is in Genesis chapter 16, and the angel of the Lord comes to Hagar, who's fled from Sarai because she's being abused. And, um, and so Hagar ends up by this spring, and the angel of the Lord appears to her, and it says, return to your mistress and submit yourself uh, under her hand. And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. This is the same kind of promise that God gave Abraham. 
And is it possible that an angel can multiply descendants? The angels are not life-giving. They are not creative, right? So, so this seems to be a divine prerogative that the angel of the Lord is taking on themselves. And then if you skip to Exodus 3, you have Moses on the mountain. And Moses is he's watching sheep. And uh, while he's watching sheep, sheep he sees, uh, what does he see? sees a burning bush. A burning bush. Caught his attention. And this burning bush is unique. Because, I mean, bushes burn, right? Right. Burn up, yes. But, but this one is different. Right. Why is it different? It didn't burn up. It didn't burn up. And so he's curious, and he steps aside to look. And in Exodus 3, 2, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Now, notice the title, Angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in this fire. And then just a couple verses later in verse 6, he says, I am the God of your father. Who is this that's talking? It's the angel of the Lord from the bush, the one that was introduced. There's no individuals introduced between here. It's just the angel of the Lord, Moses, and the angel of the Lord speaks. And it says, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And shortly after this, after he's given these uh, miraculous signs to Moses, Moses says, well, what should I call you? And he says, I am that I am, and then uh, ends up saying, this is the name you should call me, and it, it's uh, roughly translated, we don't really know how to pronounce it, but Yahweh, um, and we've kind of transliterated that into Jehovah, uh, but this is, this is the God of creation that's talking to him. He says, I am that I am, which means I am the self-existent one, Eternal. and it's angel of the Lord has said this. Numbers 22, you get Balaam, and Balaam is doing something that God told him not to do. The angel of the Lord interrupts him, but he doesn't see it. The donkey does. The donkey stops. He's beating the donkey, and it says, first of all, it says uh, the angel, God got mad at him for doing this thing that he shouldn't have been doing, and then it says the angel of the Lord appeared to the donkey, and then it says that God opened the donkey's mouth. And so you've got this like weird interplay between God and the angel of the Lord. And it seems like the angel of the Lord and God are really the same entity here in Numbers 22. And uh, I mean, we could go on, but the, there, there's definitely times when the Bible talks about an angel of the Lord. Gabriel is an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord. You might even, like I said last night, please don't call me an angel, but because I carry the message of God, you could call me a messenger of the okay. Lord, right? An angel of the Lord, not in the same way. I'm not right. a spiritual being or whatever. I don't have any power. But um, it, so, so an angel of the Lord is completely different. But when the Bible identifies the angel of the Lord, that's a whole different subject. Um, each time, one time he appears to Gideon and the angel of the Lord gives Gideon a task. And then Gideon's like, um, he's afraid. He says, I've seen the Lord, and he's afraid of that, but the, the, the angel of the Lord calms him down. And then he says, can you show me, can, can you do a sign, right? And so he goes back, and he brings an offering, a food offering, a drink offering, and, uh, and, and a meat offering, right? He's got a, some, some meat there. And, uh, and he, he puts it on this, this um, makeshift altar, a stone, and this angel of the Lord touches it, it consumes in fire, and whoop, up goes that, um, that, that uh, angel of the Lord in the fire, disappears right there in the fire. Now, this might just be an uh, interesting coincidence, but remember last night we talked about the angels, and they said they refused worship in Revelation 19.10, but with uh, Moses, the angel of the Lord says, take off your shoes, the, the ground you're standing on is holy. 
And what happens with, with Moses? He takes off his shoes. This is a sign of, of reverence. This is God. This, this is, is a sign of worship, right? Worship, absolutely. Now, if this was a, just a created angel, would he have accepted worship? He would have said stop. Not unless he's Lucifer, <laughs> yeah. right? Lucifer would be happy to, but every other angel says, no, I'm not worthy. I'm not the creator. But this angel of the Lord accepts Except. worship. And then um, again, you find um, the angel of the Lord accepting worship in, in other contexts. So um, it seems to me when I read the Bible that there are moments when the angel of the Lord is the Lord. This isn't try, to try to confuse us. Because it gives us identifying marks that make it impossible for us to, to, to mix, miss what's going on. It's not just an angel. This is God talking. So, all right, if that's the case, if an angel of the Lord is identified as the Lord in a, at least a few places in the Bible, what about this Michael character? And I just want to take you to Daniel 9.25. Can you read that for us? Sure. Daniel 9.25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street- right, that's good. Okay. So now jump forward to, to um, Daniel 12.1. Daniel 12.1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. All right, so we have these, uh, these two scenarios, and, and I, uh, we can't go back and, and do a whole study on this, but back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, God did not say, stand up and fight that devil. What God said is, I'm going to put enmity, and, I'm, and, and your seed will fight his seed. Adam and Eve were not ever going to be the ones to fight, and you and I would never be the ones to fight. Who is the seed that would fight the devil? Christ. Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus would be that seed. And, and, and let me be clear, the Bible says that Jesus is the eternal God, that he is the creator, which makes him worthy of worship. There's no doubt about it. By the time you get to Revelation 4 and 5, you find the heavenly host saying, who is worthy and who becomes worthy? Who steps into the scene? The lamb that has been slain. Jesus is worthy because he created and because he redeemed, he is worthy of our worship. There's no doubt about that. Jesus is worthy. And Jesus is the one who does battle with Satan. He's the one that wins the war over Satan. But, but then you've got this Michael figure that seems to also do battle. These heavenly cosmic battle scenes are, are Michael in there. And, and here's what I, I wonder, and I'll let you decide what you think as you study the Bible, but here's what I wonder. Did Jesus, after his incarnation, conception to Mary, did Jesus, the Son of Man and the Son of God who's worthy of our worship, have a different name before he became Jesus? And and maybe, again, I'll leave it to you to decide, maybe Michael is the character who is the prince of the angels, the the leader of the the armies of, of heaven, the chief warrior against the devil ever since he rebelled in heaven? Maybe. The Bible Bible doesn't say that we should worship Michael. It does say that we should worship Jesus. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. So, is this a salvation issue? No. Does the Bible say it point blank, absolutely clearly? Eh, Not exactly. There's definitely room for debate on the subject. So, not a big deal if you disagree with me. But I would be curious if you have something else to add. (laughs) Okay, that's all our questions for this evening. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you.
All right. So just a few upcoming topics. Tonight, Revelation's Forgotten History. We're going to follow up with the topic we had last night. I'm guessing that uh, I, I probably brought up as many questions as I answered last night, so hopefully we'll get to explore some of those today and answer a few more of them. Um, tomorrow night, I'm uh, not tomorrow night, tomorrow night we've got the day off, but Tuesday night we're going to meet again at 7, and uh, we're going to change things up a, get, a bit, and um, we're going to explore a theme that goes from Genesis to Revelation, and that as people discover this, they say, this is something that brings them great peace, and I hope that it'll bring you peace as well. On Wednesday night, Revelation 13, Babylon Rising, we're going to look at this beast that crawls out of the water in, in Revelation 13, and we're going to explore, and uh, it, it's going to be, I think, a very revealing thing, but also something that uh, will be pretty obvious when we get to the end of it. Friday night, what happens the moment after you die? Do you spend a little bit of time in purgatory? Do you go straight to heaven? Is there such a thing as limbo? Those are questions we want to tackle, and we want to get the Bible's answer, and I think you'll be surprised at how much the Bible includes on the subject of death. Um, and you might wonder, is this me just going in random directions? And I'm going to say, no, this is a very central theme to the book of Revelation, uh, because the, Revela the book of Revelation talks about the reward after death. And so what exactly that looks like is going to matter. And then on, uh, we're, because we're, we're kind of the last half of the, the series, um, I don't want to drag it on too long, but there's a couple presentations that I, I want to sneak in. And so Saturday morning at 11 o'clock right here, we're going to do one um, called uh, Secrets to Answered Prayer. And there is a key in the Bible that will guarantee that your prayers get answered. And that's not just a hyperbole. I think that you'll enjoy that one. Saturday night, God's strange acts. And we're going to turn our attention to judgment and God, well, God dealing with evil. Um, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, encouraging us not to take vengeance. But what does God's vengeance look like? Is God a, a, a tyrant toasting people and torturing them through all eternity? How does the Bible present this subject? Um, so we're going to look at that on Saturday night. Then on Sunday night, um, we're going to look at uh, we're going to look at this this reward for the righteous scenario. What is heaven like? Um, and at the same time, we're going to find out that while there's a heaven, there's a desolate earth. What's happening on earth when the people of God are in heaven? And we're going to explore the millennium on Sunday night. But tonight, Revelation's forgotten history. And tonight, we're going to pick up where we left off last night. I'm going to do a tiny bit of review, but then we're going to keep diving a little bit deeper. And I kind of want to go a little slower, um, not, not just advancing through the subject quickly, but just exploring some of these questions that we have and that often come up when we talk about the subject. So let's begin with prayer, and then we'll dive into the Bible. Father in heaven, tonight, uh, the only voice we want to hear is yours. I pray that... Uh, my presentation, my words, my demeanor would not ever interfere with your Holy Spirit sharing your truth. And if there's something that I'm sharing that's wrong, uh, please, Lord, correct that, um, either from my, my lips or in the hearing of uh, those that are present here. Please forgive me and uh, help me to stay faithful to your word. Um, anoint my lips with your spirit. And also, Lord, uh, we want to say, as you speak to our hearts, that we pledge that we will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And we ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So last night we looked at this big issue in Revelation, and we found that it was that the battle in Revelation is a battle for our minds, and it's all about an issue of God's throne. Uh, is it possible for Lucifer to sit on God's throne? Why is it not possible for Lucifer to sit on God's throne? Because he's not the creator. So the creator is worthy of worship, but nobody else is. That's the thing that we kind of came to last night. But Lucifer wanted to be worshiped like the creator, and uh, since he failed to seize God's throne, he's, he's trying to set up this alternative government, this alternative to the worship of God. He's building his own empire. But it's never going to work. He can't be worshiped. He is not worthy, and every attempt is going to end up in failure. Um, when it comes to what we believe, we also have been kind of touching on this every single night. When it comes to what we believe, where should we go for truth? The Bible. Um, Jesus put it pretty simply when he faced the devil in the desert, in the wilderness there, and the devil was tempting him. He says, make bread out of these stones. And Jesus replies, man shall not live by bread alone. He says, this is what God says, and he quotes the Bible. And then the devil misquotes the Bible, and Jesus quotes the Bible back, correcting him, right? Thus says the Lord. That's what we want. We want God to speak. The Bible is His revelation, and it says the Bible claims, and uh, I think it's, it's very well supported, the Bible claims that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so, holy men of God wrote what they were inspired by the Spirit to write. Now, if we, uh, if we look at history books, we look at anything else that's not inspired by God, it's not bad. You can read any book. You can listen to people like me. Um, it's not a bad thing. It can certainly influence um, your thoughts and help you understand Scripture better. Uh, but we need to get our truth from God's Word, directly from the Bible. In, this Bi in the Bible, there's a story about this guy named Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate was not a nice guy. He was a bad dude. And uh, there's a, a reference in the 13th chapter of Luke to an incident where Pilate mingles the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices. Apparently, he had soldiers dress up in disguises, um, like as though they were Galileans, hide um, uh, swords and stuff in their clothing. And uh, while the Galileans were, were doing some worship service, um, they, they pulled out their swords and killed everybody there. This is Pilate. He's not a nice guy. And, and so he's not the kind of guy that you'd find easily swayed by something. And, and then you get this experience where he's face-to-face -face with Jesus, and everything about his demeanor seems to change. In John chapter 18, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you the king then? And Jesus answered, Ye, You say rightly that I am a king, for this cause I was born." And for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Well, the truth about what? What did Jesus come into the world to do? There was a point when the disciples said, um, he, he said, you know my father. And the disciples were like, what? We don't know your father. And he says, have I not been with you so long that you haven't seen the father? If you've seen me, then you've seen the father. The truth that Jesus came to bear witness to is the truth of the father's character. Uh, have you noticed that there seems to be a perception in, in um, the Christian world that 
there's the Father and then there's Jesus. And the Father is this mean guy who's, you know, about law and punishment. And then there's Jesus that's about grace. But Jesus, He says, me and my Father are one. And then in John 3.16, it says, for God, that's the Father, so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, right? So there's no disconnect here. And Jesus needs to communicate that. He needs to communicate what the Father's character is all about. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so the truth that he's come to, to tell us about is the truth of the Father. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But here Pilate, he, he, um, he responds to Jesus' statement and he says, what is truth? What is truth? And I think that's a question that's really a legitimate question for you and I to ask. Let's not just make assumptions. Let's actually go and find out what is truth. And, and that statement that Jesus made um, kind of gives us the first of three, you might say, legs of a stool. A three-legged stool is a pretty stool, a pretty sturdy stool. And uh, it's really hard to have something that's less than three legs, right? If you have a two-legged stool not so sturdy. A one-legged stool, you know, well, you could get by with it, but you better not fall asleep. But a three-legged stool is kind of the foundation of sturdiness, <laughs> and you have to have at least these three points. Um, if you are building a fence, anybody built a fence before? You, you put one post in the ground, and you could go anywhere from there, right? You have no idea what direction that fence is going um, if you just walk by a single post in the ground. But, but then you put a, another post out there, and, uh, and you're like, oh, I, I can kind of see the direction that we're heading. You, you can see the, the line of the fence a little bit better. But it's not until you get the third post that you really know where that fence is headed. And, and this is kind of the first of the posts of truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ is truth. What Jesus teaches and what Jesus did illustrate to us and show us what truth is. And that's the first leg of our truth stool the second leg of the stool, the second standard, would come from something Jesus said in John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And what is the word of God? The word of God would be the Bible. And in Jesus' time, that was the Old Testament. And the, the apostles, the ones who were there with Jesus, um, wrote these special letters and gospels. And, and the, the New Testament church said, that's part of the same canon. Inspired by God, that's truth too. Your word is truth. The Bible says in Isaiah 8.20, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. The Bible is a foundational document to help us understand truth. If we hear something from David Koresh or uh, the moon or whoever else that, that um, has claimed to be some prophet or some uh, divine being or sent from God in some way, then what you got to do is you got to go back and you got to look. In fact, Paul even was very thankful and praised the Bereans because when he would say something, and Paul's one of the apostles, when Paul would say something, you know what they would do? They would go back and study the Bible, the Old Testament that they had, to see if it was so, just to make sure that he was saying what was true. And so we have this, the Bible as the standard. Jesus is truth. The Bible is truth. And this, the third stool, uh, third leg of the stool, would be something we find in Psalm 119. 
It says, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Um, So, God's moral law is always truth. It's a foundational thing. When When we see something that doesn't line up with God's law, is it true? It would not be true. If it's not in line with God's character expressed through His law, then it's not truth. So, three standards of truth, three legs to this stool of truth, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, and the law of God. So, let's take these three reference points and let's triangulate our position with the stuff we learned last night. And uh, last time we met, we we searched through the Bible. We saw that um, the seventh day was something that God had set apart at creation, a day of rest, and He established it as a permanent memorial. And what's it a memorial of? What's it looking back towards and reminding us of? Creation, Creation, okay? So, a memorial of creation. And he, He did these three things on that day. He rested, He blessed, and He sanctified or set it apart as holy. And then we discovered that nowhere in the Bible is there any record of a change um, of the Sabbath. God didn't change His mind about this memorial. Um, so um, let's, let's just check against these standards. First of all, Jesus Christ. Did Jesus, in His words and His life, support this bit of truth? Um, and and we, we have to remember that Jesus is said to be the Creator in John 1, in Colossians 1, and in Hebrews 1. Jesus is the creator. So it would have been Jesus who at creation rested and hallowed and sanctified and blessed the Sabbath day. Here in Luke 4, 16, it says, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. When you have something as a custom, like my wife and I, every day we get up probably not quite early enough, and we take the dogs out, um, and if we don't do this, they get all anxious and running around the house crazy and stuff. So we take them out, and we walk them for a couple miles. That's our habit. That's the thing we do every day. It's our custom, and the neighbors are getting to know it, and they know the dogs' names, and they stop us to chat, and um, it's it's our custom. So when it says that Jesus, as His custom was, went into the, the synagogue, what would that suggest about Jesus' life? It suggests that it was a repeated thing he did on a regular basis. And uh, so in Jesus' life and his teaching, he supports the Sabbath. It was his custom. And he, he never anticipated a change. And we know this because in Matthew 24, 20, pointing to a time that was 40 years past when he was talking, he said, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. The flight from what? It was the flight from the Romans sacking Jerusalem. And uh, pretty much universal understanding of of what this is talking about. So that happened in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus was sharing this little bit. So if if Jesus is looking 40 years into the future, he's saying, I don't anticipate there being a change here. And if you read all through the Gospels, what you discover is that not only did Jesus not change the Sabbath, but he even went to great lengths to correct people's misunderstandings about the Sabbath. You might be aware, but the, the Pharisees and the scribes came from a line of people that uh, they left the Babylonian captivity several hundred years before, and they said, we don't ever, ever want to do that again. That captivity thing was not cool. 
And if, we, if disobedience to God got us into Babylon, then we need to make sure we obey. And so you find this starting with a guy named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, when, when the Samaritans would come in and try to do their market day on Sabbath, you know what Nehemiah did? He kicked them out and closed the gates and said, no way, we're keeping the Sabbath. And uh, it started with him, but it didn't end with him. They added all kinds of interesting rules. Um, one of the rules was that you couldn't spit on the Sabbath. Because, see, if you spit, your spittle might land on a piece of grass and it would be irrigating the grass, right? Farm labor. Now, that's a ridiculous. And then they had this, this one was fun. Um, you couldn't eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath if it was from a chicken whose job it was to lay eggs. But if it was a chicken you were raising for meat and it happened to lay an egg on the Sabbath, fine. It wasn't its regular work anyway. <laughs> they had like 600 ridiculous laws. I mean, they, they, they said things like, you can't carry a burden on the Sabbath, right? And so, you remember the time when the guy is healed by Jesus, and he, he's, Jesus tells him, I mean, God, the Creator, heals him and says, take up your bed and go home. You think that God might know what he meant when he said, keep the, the Sabbath holy. And yet, the Pharisees stopped the guy and, 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 and chastised him for disobeying the Sabbath command to do no work because they had all these laws. You can't carry a burden. At one point, they said that you couldn't, you couldn't walk more than a mile on the Sabbath. But if on Friday, you took a little thing of, of you know, a little basket or something, and you put it a mile away from your home, then, and, and then when you walked that mile, you could stop and, and take a little bit of a snack there. Well, then you could walk another mile from there, because that was kind of your home because you'd eaten there. So, very strange, ridiculous rules, like 600 rules. And in Matthew 12, Jesus, He starts to correct this misunderstanding by saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God did not design the Sabbath to enslave you. He designed the Sabbath to give you rest. It was a gift. And of course, we also discover that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So, standard number one, the teachings and life of Jesus. In His life, in His teachings, He confirmed the Sabbath teaching. So, that's, that's the first leg of our truth stool. Um, is this something that's also supported in Scripture? Is it in the Word of God? And there's no question, it's in the Word of God. First, we have the Garden of Eden, and uh, clearly it's there. Before the human race ever sinned, it's there in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. God rested, He blessed the Sabbath day, He sanctified it. Now, we also saw that the Sabbath existed before God wrote down the Ten Commandments. You might remember that in Exodus 20, that's where the Ten Commandments are, but four chapters earlier in, in uh, Exodus 16, it says, six days you shall gather manna, um, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. God establishes this seven-day cycle and says the seventh day, don't pick up any food. I'm going to work a miracle, pick up twice as much on Friday, and it'll keep for, the, for both days. And then, of course, the Sabbath appears in the Ten Commandments, um, and we saw that uh, the Sabbath was there in the life of Jesus, and He even predicted it would be, still be in existence farther on. That's in the Word. We saw that the New Testament church was keeping the, the um, Sabbath, 
and you find it all through the book of Acts that the apostles were taking, as they were taking the gospel to all over the world, into Turkey and to, even into Greece and other places, Rome, that they were representing um, this Sabbath command and keeping that. And then we discovered in um, Isaiah 66 that we're going to be keeping the Sabbath even after Jesus' second coming, that it's going to be something that, that is continuing um, from one Sabbath to the next. All flesh shall come to worship me, God says. So does the Sabbath square up with God's Word? It does. It's, it's all throughout the Word. Um, so the third standard would be the law. Is, uh, is the Sabbath in the law? Or does it violate the law? And of course, it's right there in the very center of the law. Um, and we find this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter. And, and, and that's really nice. If it stopped there, that would be plenty, right? Except he goes on and he says, your male servant, your female servant, nor your cattle, your stranger who is within your gates. Don't force anybody to work. Don't even make your animals work on Sabbath. And he says, why? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested uh, the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So there it is. Three standards of truth, three um, legs to our, our stool of truth. Does it stand up? Yeah, the Bible is, is there. And we can say this is truth. This is something that we can base our life on. It's something that God has given us. Now, there are a bunch of different suggestions out there about why Sunday is actually the day that we should worship on and Saturday isn't. And, and we talked a little bit last night about uh, the apostles. Did they change it? Jesus, did, did he change it? And we found, no, there's no evidence for it being changed. But there are eight verses in the Bible that do talk about the first day of the week. And some argue that some of those verses would indicate that, that uh, the, the early Christian church was keeping a Sunday Sabbath, or a, a, at least observing worship on Sunday. So let's, uh, let's look at them. It's, they aren't very long, so we'll look at all eight, and we'll see one by one, does the Bible support a change of the Sabbath? The first is in John 20, verse 19. And this happens after Jesus' resurrection, and it says, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, uh, the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. So here it is, a worship service on the first day of the week. Or is it? Why have they assembled? Well, they've assembled for fear of the Jews because Jesus had just been killed. And so they are assembling in the room that, that had hosted them on Thursday night, and they are afraid that they might be next, that they're going to be hung on a cross just like Jesus was. And uh, so they have hidden themselves away. And you know what Jesus has to say to them? Peace be to you. It's going to be okay. And, and in fact, they had hidden away in the upper room before they ever even knew Jesus had resurrected. So certainly this is not a celebration of the resurrection. It's not a worship service. Hopefully they were praying, no, nothing wrong with praying, no matter what day it is, um, but mostly they were just hiding. The second verse is in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. 
Now, what's the, the point here? Clearly, they're taking up a collection on Sunday that must be in the context of a worship service because where else do you see the plate passed, right? Or is that what's happening here? Well, let's see what, what they, they are told to do. Lay something aside. Now, imagine that you are an, a first-century Christian, and uh, your work is uh, maybe a little bit different than you have today. Back then, you didn't get five days of work and two days of a, uh, of a weekend. That was, that was a modern invention. So back then, you worked six days a week. And in fact, Jesus even says it, or the, the Ten Commandments say it, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath, right? So, so from Sunday to Friday, they're working. And Sunday is the first day of the week. And you know what he's asking them to do? He's saying, when you collect your wages at the end of the day on Sunday, that first day, give that to the Lord. Make that a special offering that you lay aside. And then when I come, you'll have something prepared, something saved up so that I can take it to the Jews who are experiencing um, uh, a famine in Jerusalem, to the Christians that are in Jerusalem, I should say. And this is uh, right in line with a biblical, biblical principle. Um, Proverbs 3, 9 says, honor God with the first fruits of your increase. The, the beginning of your week, the first thing that you get that week, give that to God is what he's saying. This isn't a worship service. This is something that you have at home. In fact, some translations even say that, that lay something aside at home. Because the intention here is not that they're getting together on this day, but that they're laying aside their, um, something from their labor from that day. Passage number three comes from Acts 20, verses 7 through 11. It says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, all re- Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in the window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. Now, if, if this is not a thou shalt not fall asleep while I'm preaching, um, then, then what is? Because what happens next is that he was overcome by sleep as Paul continued preaching, and he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Let this be a warning. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Paul has been preaching all day, and it's midnight. The poor kid is tired. He falls asleep. Of course he would. He falls down dead, but Paul goes down, falls on him, embraces him, and says, don't trouble yourself. His life is still in him, and I mean, it's a a miraculous story. Eutychus is raised from the dead. It's pretty amazing, and then it says, um, when they had come back up to the the room, they broke bread and ate and talked a long while, even till daybreak when he departed. Clearly, clearly this proves that the early disciples had worship services on the first day of the week, right? Well, let's think through this carefully because exactly how this works is a little bit different than the way we think about how this works. Um, First of all, a key to understand, Paul preached until midnight and then again until daybreak. That's an important thing to notice. When does Paul begin to preach? It doesn't really say when as far as like the time of day, but we know it was the evening that they're focusing on, right? Um, And and unless you're in one of the poles, by the time you get to midnight, is the sun out or is the sun gone? It's dark by then, right? Okay, 
So we're talking about the dark time of the, the day. And uh, notice it, it, it's, it's talking about this moment where they get together and, and they have a meal. And the next day, Paul ends up leaving. So what we're talking about isn't so much a worship service, though Paul is definitely sharing truth from God's word with these people before he leaves. What, what they're doing is they're throwing Paul a little party before he, he goes away. Now, let's, let's look at um, how this works. In our current situation, um, we are, I think from the Romans, we're tracking a day from midnight to midnight. So today is um, Sunday, right? And it'll be Sunday long after it gets dark, right into the middle of the night. And then, miraculously, in the middle of the night, we switch from Sunday to Monday. And uh, that's not how they did it in the Bible. So in the Bible... From Genesis, the story of creation, we find this, um, and um, all the way through, even Leviticus twenty three thirty two says, "From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath." So, there's a a evening time being the beginning of the day, and the next sunset, the evening time of the following day, being the end of that day. So, if this is the case, then when the Bible says that they were um, getting together on Sunday, and it happens to be the evening part of Sunday, how would that translate into our calendar? What day of the week would that be for us? It'd be Saturday night. And some translations even say that. For instance, the New English Bible points out, on the Saturday night in our assembly for the breaking of bread, Paul, who was about to leave the next day, addressed them and went on speaking until midnight. There's a different pattern that they are, are processing. So it's not that, that this group of, of people were having a worship service Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. It's that they were finishing their Sabbath services, and Paul just kept talking all into the night, even on the first day after they had their potluck dinner. And, and then he kept talking until midnight. A guy dies. He raises him up from the dead, and they, they ate another dinner, and then they kept talking until the morning. And uh, the next day, The Bible says that uh, he walked, Paul, left there. Poor guy must have been super tired. He left there and walked for 20 miles that day. If Sunday was intended to be a Sabbath, a replacement for the Sabbath rest of the the seventh day of the week, then Paul was doing a pretty bad job of resting. Anybody ever walked a couple miles and felt rested afterwards? That's possible. Anybody ever walked 20 miles and felt rested afterwards? It's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? 20 miles. All right, so our fourth text comes from Luke 23, 56 to, to Luke 24, 1. And, and the, the rest of these verses are going to follow a very similar pattern. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. So, so this verse and all of the next ones we're going to look at are chronicling the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and it's just kind of looking at these three days, the preparation day, the Sabbath day, and the first day of the week when the resurrection happens. So this is before the resurrection. Nobody's, nobody's celebrating a resurrection at this point. And in fact, it's pointing out that indeed they kept the Sabbath and rested on it while Jesus was in the grave. Mark 16, 1 and 2, very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And then Mark 16, 9, um, just a, a little bit later says, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. 
Again, is there anything about the change of a Sabbath day here? No, it's just chronicling the record of uh, what happened at Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In John, um, sorry, I'm not keeping up with my slides. In John 20, verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Is there anything here about a change of the day? No. And uh, now this is Matthew 28.1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. No indication anywhere in the Bible that the Sabbath has been changed. And no indication that Sunday had any special significance, the first day of the week, to the early Christian church. Are there verses in the Bible that would suggest that the Sabbath has been abolished, though? We, we tried to explore some of those last night, but let me take you to, to two that we didn't talk about. One was Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And you might have been thinking about this one as I was talking last night and wondering why I didn't bring it up. Well, tonight, let's, let's uh, take a little bit of a, a moment to explore it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. This seems pretty clear. Don't judge each other if one person eats or doesn't eat or keeps a Sabbath or doesn't, right? But, but notice that Paul is, is saying this as a plural thing. He's, he's saying Sabbath as a plural, Sabbaths. And in, in the Jewish economy, there was the seven-day cycle Sabbath, the one that happened every seventh day. But then there was also other days, and Sabbath simply means rest. In fact, Hebrews, he men- um, Paul mentions it in Hebrews and says, there remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He uses that word. There's a, a Sabbath that happens every week, but also a Sabbath that happens in the cycles of these festivals that the Israelites have. And we talked about them when we talked about Daniel 8, the Passover, Pentecost, Day of Atonement, Feast of Trumpets, etc. All of these things have um, a moment when they stop and they rest from their ordinary work. And, and some of those feasts even have more than one day in a row that's considered a Sabbath day. So in, like for instance, in Leviticus twenty-three thirty-two. It says, it, the day of atonement, shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls. So these are special days, and they happen once a year. Um, They happen on the cycle of uh, the calendar, you know, the seasonal changes and stuff impact that. We talked about there being spring feasts and fall feasts, and, and they're not connected to the weekly cycle at all. And the Bible even indicates some different things, like, um, for instance, on the Sabbath, it says, don't do any work, you or your kids or your servants or your animals. But then on the festival Sabbaths, it it says, don't do any ordinary work. If you were keeping the Feast of Trumpets for 10 days, could you not cook? Could you not take care of your animals? Clearly, you'd have to do some of those tasks, but he invites you not to do the kind of work that's going to be you know, your typical ordinary work. Um, so there's it's a little bit different um, environment that the Bible is talking about, these two different Sabbaths, the annual Sabbaths, which were part of the ceremonial law and pointed forward to Jesus. And then the weekly Sabbath was not pointing forward to Jesus. It was a, it was a memorial of what? Creation. Notice Leviticus 23, 37 and 38. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim... Um, 
to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering, a grain offering, a sacrifice, a drink offering, and everything on its day. So these were special sacrifices, and they involved um, various sacrificial rituals. And there was food, and there was drink, right? And uh, what did Paul say in Colossians 2? He was talking about food and drink and things that were shadows of things to come, which were fulfilled in Christ. So when Paul is talking about this, don't let anybody judge you about a Sabbath or the Sabbaths. He's talking about the ceremonial Sabbaths, not the weekly one. Um, and, and what exactly is this shadow? Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the thing, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So the, the ceremonial law, it's not going to save you. It's only Jesus. The ceremonial law is a shadow of the real thing that Jesus would do. Now, let's go back to Colossians. Notice it says this food, drink, festivals, shadows, and, it, and in their middle, it's talking about Sabbaths. And the Sabbaths that are connected to the shadows are the festival Sabbaths, not the weekly Sabbaths. All right, there's uh, one more text, Romans chapter 14. <coughs> Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. And this one seems to be pretty conclusive. It says, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Hey, it doesn't matter which day. In fact, it co- he goes on, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. And doesn't that seem to fly in the face of everything that we've studied so far? Like, what is the Bible saying? Why does it confuse us like this? If you want to keep it, fine. If you don't want to keep it, fine. Whatever. But let me ask you an important question. Does Paul ever mention the Sabbath in this verse? It just says, one day or another, esteeming. What what does that mean? What is Paul talking about? Let's uh, Let's keep reading. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. So now Paul's talking about eating. And there's nothing in the fourth fourth commandment about food. Um, I mean, the biggest thing that the early Christians dealt with was not the Sabbath. The biggest thing the early Christians dealt with was um, the this, this stuff about Jewish rituals and ceremonies. It was about circumcision, and it was about feast days and fast days and ceremonially washing your hands and food offered to idols. These were the things that they were, were contentious. And Paul spoke against the Judaizers, and there's all kinds of different um, things in the Bible that are addressing these problems that the church was facing, but not one of them is addressing the Sabbath day, the seventh day Sabbath. Look at the the first verse in Romans 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but uh, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Again, nothing to do with the Sabbath day. It's, It's about these festivals and fast days. If you eat something, great. If you don't eat something, fine. Um, he's, he's saying, let it be up to your own conscience if you're going to keep one of these things or not. And if you read 1 Corinthians 8, you'll see that one of the biggest disputes of that day was over whether or not it was okay to eat food offered to idols. And Paul comes down on the side that says, hey, 
listen, you know that idols aren't bad. I mean, idols aren't anything. They're, they're, just, um, they're just stone or wood or, or metal, right? So eating uh, the meat offered to idols, it's, it's not going to do anything because the idols are nothing. But you probably shouldn't do it because if somebody who doesn't understand that comes into the church, you might cause them to stumble. It'd be better to just be a vegetarian. That's kind of where Paul ends up in 1 Corinthians 8. So here in Romans chapter 14, it, it's something similar. It's talking about ceremonial day, days, ceremonial fasting and feasting. Do whatever seems appropriate, Paul says. It's optional. Follow your own conscience. Don't push it onto other people. So between last night and tonight, we've looked at pretty much every verse that might seem to contradict the Ten Commandment law to keep the Sabbath. We've looked at all the places that we could find that talked about the first day to consider whether the day was changed. We've looked at the apostles' lives and the lives of Jesus, um, and there doesn't seem to be any change anywhere in the New Testament. Um, So how did it get changed? Where did this come from? And we touched on it last night just a little bit, there's a hint in Revelation 13 as well, and uh, we, we pointed out this idea of the lawlessness, right, the, and that it was going to be something that comes from the church, this falling away, this apostasy, and uh, last night we gave you this sneak peek into the Catholic converts catechism, and the question was, which is the Sabbath day? And the answer was, Saturday is the Sabbath day, and then we looked at the next question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? And the answer was, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. All right. So how did that happen? Um, A little more review. This is James Cardinal Gibbons. And uh, he says, you may read from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. And the cardinals, right? We looked, and that's what we found. So, um, and of course, remember Paul's prediction. I messed that up. I hit the wrong button, and it went to the very beginning. Russell, would you mind finding Cardinal Gibbon and see if, uh, see if we can get back on track? So Paul has this prediction in the early Christian church, and, uh, and then you find that Constantine comes on the scene. There we go. That's Constantine. Um, handsome appearance of him, I'm sure. Um, so Constantine comes on the scene, and he is, he is not a Christian. He worships Apollo, but he favors Christianity, eventually becomes baptized on his deathbed, but his favoring Christianity makes Christianity pretty popular, and people end up joining for political and social reasons rather than for faith that they actually believe in, in Jesus. Um, and these pagans who uh, join for political benefit, they want to keep their paganism to some extent, and uh, we talked a little bit about some of that last night. And uh, there's just some examples here. I'll give you one. Um, The Pantheon in Rome, it used to be, well, Pantheon means uh, all the gods. It was a temple to all the gods of Rome. But when the Christian church comes into power in Rome, uh, the Christian church takes over and it becomes a, um, a place where they bury the martyrs and they you know, famous people in Christianity get buried there. And, uh, and, and it was kind of a chapel of sorts. 
Another example, um, this is in St. Peter's Basilica, um, just to the right of Bernini's canopy. If you've ever been there, I haven't, but uh, this is, uh, of course, the statue of St. Peter. Except the historians tell us that this statue existed before Christianity even came on the scene. This used to be, before Christians came there, this used to be the statue of Jupiter. But when Christians came into the mix, they just said, well, you know, let's repurpose the statue. It looks good enough. We'll call it Peter. And that was that. And another one that they, they loved, the festival that they enjoyed a lot, was the festival of the sun, the sun day, where they would worship the sun, but it was also a party day and a day with they, they got to spend time with people and enjoy life and whatnot. And uh, so long story short, the, the tension between the new pagan slash Christians and the faithful Christians grew and grew and the pagan Christians ended up becoming more prominent and more powerful. And um, eventually by the fourth century, um, just to complicate matters, Christians not wanting to be associated with the Jews because the Jews were being persecuted by Rome end up um, ab- abandoning the Sabbath to a certain extent and, and kind of doing the thing that their culture was doing, and they had these family get-togethers and celebrations and stuff on Sunday. And uh, so you have this Constantine figure, you have all these pagans coming into the church, and um, eventually Constantine passes a law that enforces worship on the first day of the week. And it, he says, on the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in the cities rest and let all the workshops be closed. And uh, sometime after Constantine passes this law, the church decides that they're going to add a law to the mix. And so AD 364, the Council of Laodicea said this, Christians shall not Judaize and be idle on Saturday, but shall work on that day. But the Lord's day they shall especially honor. Interestingly, this statement in the late 4th century demonstrates that Christians are still keeping the Sabbath by this time. But all of a sudden, Sunday is the Lord's Day, though that's not in the Bible as we found out last night. And uh, the historian and Catholic priest James Carroll tells us why they thought they needed this law. For centuries, Christians' celebration of Easter coincided exactly with Passover, and their observance of the Sabbath continued to take place on Saturday. Interesting, meaning that, that we haven't always observed Easter on the Sunday. They, they simply observed it with Passover. And, and we haven't always kept Sunday as a day of worship. Um, it used to be that Saturday was the day that Christians kept, according to this um, Catholic priest and historian. Remember what the historian Heinrich Holtzman told us? We read this last night. The authority of the church could therefore not be bound to the authority of Scripture because the church had changed the Sabbath into Sunday, not by command of Christ, but by its own authority. Do you see the, the issue here? God didn't change the Sabbath. We did. Christians changed the Sabbath. And in Daniel 7, we get this this picture of Christians in this time of history where this was happening. And you know what the Bible predicts would happen? It says that there is going to be this power, this uh, church in this case, that would intend to change times and laws. Bible prophecy is clear. Somebody's going to tamper with God's law and God's times. 
And it just happened that it was us that did the tampering. Remember that phrase about lawlessness, the mystery of lawlessness? Father T. Enright, early in the 20th century, uh, in a, a, a paper called The Worker's Bulletin, said, Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday is the Sabbath. Any schoolboy knows that Sunday is the first day of the week. I have repeatedly offered $1,000 to anyone who will prove by their Bible alone that Sunday is the day we are bound to keep and no one has called for the money. Why did no one ever collect that $1,000 early in the 20th century? That's a lot of money back then, probably ten dollars or $15,000 a day. Why does nobody end up collecting? Because it's not there. Stephen Keenan, in his doctrinal catechism, asked the question, have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals and precept? And his answer, had she not such power, she could not have done that in which all modern religionists agree with her. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday for the first day of the week, uh, Sunday the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday the seventh, a change for which there is no scriptural evidence." How much scriptural evidence? None. And the question comes back, just like Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? You don't find truth in man-made traditions. It doesn't matter where they come from. And, and it's not surprising that, that Paul and Peter would point out that there is potential error um, going around the church. One of them says, that, that, that there are doctrines of demons that are being taught in Christian churches, like something that, that the devil initiated and intends to perpetuate. And no wonder, because, well, didn't we look at last night the reality that the only one who's worthy of worship is the Creator God, and the, the thing that identifies on a weekly basis, on a regular, uh, regular way, the thing that identifies who the Creator God is, is the Sabbath day. Somebody, the devil, wants to undermine this thing because he doesn't want us to believe in the Creator God. Jesus once said, In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And for me, that's not what I want. And it doesn't matter what church you're in, there, you can always end up with these little, uh, you know, these little side doctrines, Right? And I think it's really important for us to keep with the Bible, keep our focus centered on the Bible. What does the Bible say? Let it be our teacher. Let God, through His Spirit and God's Word, be the one that guides us, not the culture of a church, certainly not the dogmas of some teacher, no matter how great they might be. In Isaiah 58, we should keep this in our minds. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth, and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. This is not the doctrines of a church or some man. This is God who has said, if you do this, I will feed you and I will honor you. I've discovered this to be true. Uh, there is a man 
I believe his name is Brian, but I was a young, a young man at the time, and I was friends with his, his kids, not him. But I do remember this story very clearly. He was a nominal Christian. He had two boys. He and his wife owned a, uh, a used car lot, and they made a decent living at it. He had uh, four or five people in the, the shop, four or five people in the sales department, and this was, this was the way that he made money. Well, one day he was um, researching and studying the Bible and felt like conviction that he should dive deeper into the Bible and figure out this whole religion thing a little bit more, and he ends up stumbling um, on the Sabbath, and he, he becomes convicted that God is calling him to honor the Sabbath. Well, it's a problem because his business did more sales on Sabbath than on all the other weeks, all the other days of the week combined. It would be cutting out half his income and half the income of all of his workers if he stopped selling on Sabbath. Well, he got together with these guys. He talked it over with them. He said, this is what I'm convicted to do. And they decided that they would try it out. And so they closed their business on Saturday, opened it on Sunday instead. And what happened was quite interesting. Over the next month or so, things kind of dropped for a little bit. Um, first couple of weeks as people got used to the new, you know, new, new things going on. And, and uh, as they saw, he was the only shop open on Sunday. Guess what happened to his sales? He, he had more sales after saying yes to honoring the Sabbath than before. He decided that he would honor God, and God said that he would feed him with the heritage of Jacob. He would provide for him. And I know that... that um, this particular man experienced financial success, and not everybody does when they say yes to following God. Some people experience hardship when they say yes to following God. Um, and, and for some of you here tonight, this might be a new thing, and it might be a challenge, and it might have some financial impact or some social impact or some reshuffling your family life impact if you were to say yes to, to, to this thing that God has asked of you. But tonight, God is asking you to trust Him to take a step in faith and to say, okay, God, how are you going to provide for me? Right now, the whole world is tired. Creation is groaning under the weight of our sins, and our hearts are aching for the kingdom of God. And right now, even before Jesus comes, God is extending to us a gift, the gift of time, the gift of rest, and saying, just experience Experience heaven here on earth a little bit. He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A lot of people wonder where God is. Uh, they, they hear theory about, but, about him, but they don't experience him. And I think tonight God's offering you a really tangible, precious gift, an opportunity to have an experience with him, to take a step in faith. He's offering you a weekly date. Now, um, I'd like to give you an opportunity. And if I could get the ushers to come up. They've got a little card. And here's what I want to do. I don't want to put any pressure on anybody, uh, but I do want to know, are you, are you understanding this? Is what I'm sharing making any sense? Um, and, and so I've got this little card here. Um, the ushers are just going to give you a stack and hand them down, I think, or something. Um, but if you could just take that card 
and uh, look at it with me. I'll let them finish handing it out and then we'll, we'll kind of look at it together. Just take one and pass them down. All right. The first line here says, I have heard about the Seventh-day Sabbath before. Now, it would not surprise me if you had because something like 3,000 people a day are learning about the Bible Sabbath um, in in today's world, all across the world. So it wouldn't surprise me if this is something you've heard about before, but um, if you've heard about it, just check yes. If you haven't, check no. If this is the first time you've been hearing about it um, during these meetings, um, either way, that's fine. I just, I'm just curious. Um, the second one is, is it, it is clear to me from the Bible that Saturday the seventh day is God's Sabbath. And again, uh, no pressure to say yes or no. I just want to understand, is this making sense to you? And if not, um, I'd love to know why. Can you tell me more? Like, what is it that I could explain in better, in uh, clearer or in better detail? The third line says, pray for me. I'm considering what this means for me. And if you're in that moment where you're saying, I, th- I think this is what God wants me to do, but I'm not really quite sure how to reorganize my life. I'm not sure what this would all look like. Um, I'm kind of maybe even a little worried about it. Um, just check that box, pray for me, and I'd, I'd love to do that. And I do pray for you by name. And then the last line says, I would like more information. If you check that line, um, I'd be happy to, to sit down with you or chat with you on the phone or something. Just give me your name and contact information, and I'll make sure to get in touch with you. And uh, we can see what kind of information would be helpful, and I can provide you with some additional resources to research this and explore more. What I want from you is for you to be the one that studies this out and knows it for yourself. Not for you to have heard Jason say it and be like, oh, that makes sense. Sure, I'll follow Jason. Because I'm not the one you should be following. The, those at the, the Revelation story in Revelation 14, they're not following Jason wherever he goes. They're following the lamb wherever he goes. So I, I'd love to provide you with resources to help you study this subject more if you'd like that. Check that box, put your name and info down. And if I can get the, the deacons, or the, the ushers rather, to come back and just um, drop that uh, card in there uh, in the basket that they bring and, uh, and we'll collect those. Thank you for humoring me. The last two nights we've gone through pretty quickly quite a bit of detail and we've covered a bunch of verses and a bunch of history stuff too. And uh, I know sometimes that can be a little overwhelming. We do have the, the, the notes from the study so that you can kind of go back and review that. And I would encourage you to do that. Um, dive in and, and study it for yourself. All right, let's pick these up. Thank you very much. All right. Looks like we just have a couple more. 
when God offers us rest, it, it's not, this, this is a command, right? It's a command like uh, don't kill people. When, when, he, when He gives us this command, it's for our good. And He gives it, as Jesus put it, as a gift. It's for us. It's for our benefit. And uh, I think as, as we pray tonight, I'd like to, to just think about that. What kind of gifts does God want to give you? Let's pray. Lord, you have offered us this precious gift of rest. And, well, we understand, first of all, that you're real, that you created, and that this gift of rest is a, a memorial, a, a something to remember that you created and that you are the one that's worthy of our worship. Lord, we believe in you, and we believe you're the one who made us, and you're the one who redeemed us, and you're the one who's coming back. And we pray, Lord, that you give us the courage in these last days to follow you with all our hearts, to allow you to write your name, your character in our minds, and to follow you wherever you go. Thank you for the people who are here tonight. Thank you for their earnest desire to know you better and follow you more completely. Um, Please bless our understanding and continue to pull us deeper and deeper into this relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.